All right, everyone. You've been listening. You've been waiting. And now the big Rent Ready reveal can finally come to light. Rent Ready just launched rental property accounting for all landlords. Now you can easily connect your rental properties from Rent Ready to an accounting software created specifically for landlords with Rent Ready's newest partner, REI Hub. So essentially with this, you can automatically transfer properties and charges from your rent ready profile. You can track your income and expenses with matching rules and payment templates to speed up your bookkeeping. View your profit and loss cash flow statements by property or unit and get your portfolio's balance sheet, schedule ease, and more. It would be so cool to get this all in one place too. This we've been doing this on the side. Imagine yeah. having this all in one REI hub. Love it. Like that play. So uh, this is something we definitely can use and we will be using. Um, so without further ado, obviously listeners, we are very excited about this and there's something a little bit more exciting. We more have exciting a exciting than that. Yeah. Way more. We can hook up our listeners. So with that, if you're currently not using rent ready, you can sign up using our special code juice pod and get 50% off your rent ready subscription. Once you set up your properties, you can add rental properties accounting as a premium feature. If you're currently using Rent Ready, go check out the new accounting features designed to save you time and money while you manage your business. So whether you don't have Rent Ready or you do, you have access to this feature. Make sure to use our code JuicePod. That's J-U-I-C-E-P-O-D to get your access, and that is found on RentReady.com. R-E-N-T-R-E-D-I.com. If this is your first time here, welcome. During our shows, we interview successful entrepreneurs and investors to spread knowledge, advice, and actionable tactics to help others in the pursuit of financial freedom. We discuss successes, failures, systems, motivations, experiences, and key lessons learned along the way in the hopes that these stories help you along your journey. Tune in every Wednesday to get your weekly juice. If you've been here before and like what you've been hearing, please subscribe, share with friends, rate, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That goes an extremely long way for us. It's simple. Just click on your podcast app, type in our podcast name, The Weekly Juice, click on the reviews and let us know what you think. The more ratings we get, the more eyes we'll get in our show and in turn, we'll be able to provide you all with high quality guests. You can also find us on Instagram at Weekly Juice Pod for daily content and personal finance tips to assist in your journey towards financial freedom. Welcome back to the Weekly Juice, where we talk real estate, personal finance, and entrepreneurship. So it's Corey here by himself today. Uh, I hope you guys are looking forward to a good episode. We have on special guest Jillian Johnsrud, and she is uh, an awesome investor from Montana who reached financial freedom at the age of 32, which is pretty cool. It's a couple years away for me. The reason Ryan's not here today is because he, he actually is under the weather. So you got me. It was a really good episode. Don't tell Rye. Uh, Jillian agreed, just in case anybody was wondering. But Jillian is a, a progress coach, a mentor, a financial blogger. And as I mentioned before, she became financially independent at 32 years old by using the power of real estate, by buying undervalued properties. She actually only bought two or three properties to, to create you know, like $500,000 in equity. And she now has $700,000 invested into the market where she you know, can create, you know, on a 10% return, she can create $70,000 a year. So she was able to keep her expenses low. She paid off, you know, she started from humble beginnings. 
she paid off $55,000 in debt and she kind of changed the course of her life, kept her expenses low and then created financial freedom. So now she can work on passion projects like coaching and mentoring and, uh, and writing a, an awesome book that we talk about in the show. So it was a really good episode. In my opinion, I think uh, Jillian has a unique story, but a very relatable story. And I think that's, what's really important to note here. So without further ado, let's bring in Jillian and uh, get this episode underway. Okay, Jillian, uh, thank you for joining the show today. We appreciate your time. And uh, we've been checking out your journey on social media for a little while. You came highly recommended from uh, a listener of the show. So we figured we'd bring you on. If you, uh, if you could, maybe just give us a little background on yourself, who you are, where you're from, and kind of how you got into this financial independence journey. Ooh. That's a, that, that's a lot. Um, let's, I'm Jillian Johnson. I'm 38 now. Um, I became financially independent at 32, but my husband and I started with $55,000 debt. Uh, when we married, I was 19 and over the years, just trying to save half, invest half. Um, yeah, we slowly built up, uh, a stock portfolio. That's about a third of our income. My husband retired from the military, which is about a third and rental properties, which is about a third. So we kind of took, it started as a mini retirement because we've taken a lot of mini retirements and we just extended it and giving some space for my creative and entrepreneurial kind of leanings now. Great. I'm wondering if you, if you had always been savvy with, well, it sounds like you, you weren't always savvy with money mm-hmm. because you got in, you got into uh, $55,000 of debt, whether that be student loans, credit cards and, and, and medical. And that's kind of like, but extremely normal, right. Yeah. In terms of, in terms of what, you know, how America is, it kind of works. So I'm curious, like, was there a light bulb moment for you that went off that said, okay, this isn't working or this isn't the way I want to live. And if so, can you just describe how that changed your mindset? Yeah. When I was about 12, you know, we, we were kind of right at the poverty line growing up. Um, and my mom was in a very unhealthy marriage, um, to her second husband. And I went to her and I said, we can't stay here we can't do this. Like, I don't care where we live. I don't care where we go, but like, this isn't working. And she's a very practical woman and said, Jillian, I can't afford to raise three kids on my own. Like we don't have a choice. And I went upstairs and I just cried hot tears into my bed. But I had this light bulb moment that, Oh, money gives you options. And it gives you choices. And in that moment, I desperately wanted more options and I never wanted to be in that same spot. So I started saving as much as I could. You know, I worked after school all through high school um, and just kind of, you know, added up all those little acorns. And when I went to college, I was able to pay cash for a fifth wheel camper and that was home and I moved in and I lived there. Uh, but it was great. I loved having, yeah, my own, my own space. I guess the next question is like, what does financial independence mean to you? And it's one thing to start saving up the money, but then to, 
take that savings and know what to do with it is really like yeah. the next level. We'll call it like level one financial independence. So like, mm-hmm. what does it mean to you? And, and, and what did you then do specifically intentionally to try to become financially independent? Yeah. So I would say the technical definition of financial independence is that the income from your investments or your real estate or your passive income covers all of your expenses indefinitely for the rest of your life. So you never have to work to pay your bills. A lot of people still work in financial independence. Um, you know, for us, it looked like, well, I actually, because of where we started, having all of this debt, we didn't go into high earning careers. Like I worked at Starbucks, sold mattresses. My husband was in the military. He was enlisted. Like we just weren't high earners. I didn't think that we would be able to be financially independent until we were like 60. Mm -hmm. So we were really intentional about taking little mini retirements all throughout the process. Cause I thought, well, we can't wait to do all of this stuff until we're financially independent because we will be old by then. Um, And so when we kind of hit our fine number, we decided initially just to take a year off was kind of the plan. Um, Because we had been in this really busy season. We had bought three properties in the course of like four or five years. Uh, We had adopted three kids. We had had another biological kid. Like it was kind of like we barely had our heads above water. Um, And when I found out I was pregnant with our fifth kiddo, I was like, okay, yeah, (laughs) this isn't working. We need to do something different. And so we took a year off to just explore what we wanted this next season to look like. Got it. Very cool. So do you have a maybe a baseline, either a rule of thumb or some sort of some way that you calculate either getting to five, but then also maybe some suggestions for people that are just starting out on what you specifically, what action steps maybe you specifically took uh, as you widen the gap between your income and your expenses. Yeah. When we started off, we, someone gave us the, this advice to just save half of our income when we got married. They're like, you've been living on like one income, just keep living on one income. And then that way you'll have some choices. Like if you guys decide to have kids or buy a house or something. And I was like, well, that's, that makes sense. So that was kind of our objective is just, we'll just save half. And initially that went towards debt repayment and then uh, emergency fund. And eventually it went to start investing. Uh, And we invested in, you know, our tax, our tax advantage like retirement accounts, but I always really wanted to buy real estate. So we also invested in a brokerage account. Um, and about 10 years in of renting, 10 years of renting, uh, we were able to pay cash for our first house and then bought another house like six months later. Got it. What, what was the, what went into that decision to, to pay cash for your first house, especially being a real estate investor or soon to be (laughs) what a lot of real estate investors have told me. And everyone has something different to say, which is a beautiful thing about the investing space is that there's a lot of ways to win, but where I kind of learned the game by saying, okay, if I had a hundred thousand dollars, let's just call it that I would go out there and I try to buy three to five rental properties and spread Mm -hmm. out my, the leverage that real estate gets you because those rental properties will eventually appreciate and over time double and maybe even triple in value. Mm -hmm. You went for the ultimate security. And maybe that's because you have 
multiple kids. And, and that was something that you said, I, okay, I need the security over the leverage. Is, did that come into play when you decided to buy your house in cash? And I think that a lot of people are probably listening to the episode at this age where they're like, they, maybe they can't buy their house, house in cash, but <laughs> if, if they could, what would you recommend and why did you do it that way? Yeah. So I think, I think both ways have their own advantages. Uh, the reason it made sense for us in that moment, uh, one, it was bank owned and it was in awful shape. Like, got it. Yeah. I don't know if uh, a bank would have financed it. Um, and it had been in closing and it had fallen through and they put it back on the market. They really dropped the price. And we knew just coming in with an all cash offer uh, was going to be our strongest offer. So that was a big factor, but for people who are pursuing financial independence and who want more flexibility, um, having low expenses is really helpful in that. So because we had paid off all of our debt, because we didn't have car loans or student loans anymore, we didn't have a mortgage. Our expenses were really low. We only had to spend about 2000 a month. Uh, and because my husband retired from the military, we had healthcare through, through that. Um, and so that really helped us make the leap into kind of this financially independent lifestyle. And I don't know if we could have done that if we had initially done that high leverage. I don't know if the little bit of rent from all these properties would have come out the same for us. Um, but then we actually did a cash out after a few years, uh, we did a cash out refi. We bought our, uh, our next rental property with it. Uh, and then we actually did another cash out refi on the same house and moved into that rental that we purchased. So this second rental we purchased was a bigger family home. And we knew with five kiddos at one point, we'll want more space. So we bought the rental that we knew eventually we would move into. Um, did that next cash out refi to renovate this house. We've been here a year now and it's been a year of living renovations. Right. Um, and that was another factor in our choice was when we bought our first house, it was our first house. It needed to be completely gutted. Um, and we had never done renovations. We had no idea what we were doing. We were just watching YouTube videos. Oh, you were so doing like, them yourself. Yes. We did it all ourselves. There was no way we could have done that to 10 houses, like all at the same time. It almost broke us doing one house at a time. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting because you can actually, if you're purchasing a property and I know, I don't know if we mentioned this to our listeners that you live in Montana mm -hmm. and I don't know what specifically what the cost of living is there. Although I heard recently that it's actually growing significantly the cost of living out there. So I don't, it yes. seems to me that it would be low, like coming from somebody on the East coast, but mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about that? And like what, what type of, of dollar figures you had to, to put down mm -hmm. on a, on a cash purchase of a fixer upper mm -hmm. in, in Montana? Cause I don't even know. We, at that moment in time, uh, our timing was pretty good. We moved, we lived in Germany for four years uh, with the military. We moved back to the States in 2012. So if you guys were in the real estate market in 2012, we this not. is like four <laughs> years into the crash. All of the investors have used all of their cash up, um, buying houses the first couple of years. And people really wanted move-in ready houses. So houses that needed substantial work were a pretty good deal. 
And that was the first three houses we bought needed substantial, like scared away the average homeowner kind of projects. Um, so a lot of the houses that were, um, kind of moving ready were about 150. Um, we got this house for 50, uh, it had been in closing for 80, but the whole basement was covered in black mold. Um, the housing market has recovered since then. So that house is now worth, um, about three and a quarter. Oh, significant. Uh, and the house yeah, we absolutely. live in now is worth about three and a quarter. Yeah. So okay. all three of our houses have, um, we paid one ten for this house and it's, it just appraised at three forty. So the property that you purchased that was for $50,000 and now is worth three and a quarter. We're talking about coming up on 10 years later, mm-hmm. obviously you're beating inflation with that, uh, significantly beating inflation, yeah. but, but how much money did you put into the property, mm-hmm. uh, in order to boost that value? And just curious how much equity mm-hmm. you were able to gain from that. Yeah, we put about 50,000 in, and that was spread out over about five years. Um, okay. And the house that we're living in now, I said, like I said, we um, paid one ten, and we're also going to put about fifty, sixty thousand into this full house renovation. Um, before the renovation, it appraised about three forty. It probably be about three seventy five once we're done. That's awesome. So we're talking about you know half a million dollars in equity in these homes or <laughs> over that, and and it's really if you were to tell somebody that they could increase their net worth by half a million dollars by owning a couple properties, a lot of people would look at you and be like, that's just it's just crazy. It doesn't make sense, but it does if you're buying properties that are undervalued, you're fixing them up, and you don't have to have that many. Which leads me yeah. to my next question of. Sound like you kind of got pretty good at this. Like it's it's difficult, maybe more difficult today than it was when you purchase. But I'll still give you the credit that you purchased you purchased these properties super undervalued. You fixed them up. You held, which is hard to do. That's what investors do. They hold, and now you have all this equity. Why did you decide to take the route of investing? Um, I don't know if it was in index funds or the stock market or mm-hmm. using your money that way versus to continuously build a rental portfolio, being that you're actually pretty good at it. Yeah, we liked the diversity. We kind of like the 50-50 diversity. Um, I like rental income because it spends very similar to a paycheck versus um, stock market where you have to kind of pull money out. It just, it, emotionally, it feels very different. Right. Uh, but part of it, honestly, was just our season in life. If we had been 22 with no kids, we might've been like 20 doors. <laughs> But with honestly five young kids, um, we intentionally chose houses that were bigger and that had garages and that had lots of storage space because we didn't want people to move out. Like even just the idea of turning over a property uh, felt very disruptive to our life. So we picked the properties that we knew we would attract long-term tenants where we probably could have made more money if we would have done, done like studio apartments or like lower income kind of housing, the return would have been higher, but it just wasn't right in that season of life. Yeah. So you, you built out this level of security for yourself where, and, and Ryan, I, we, we discuss this all the time in our rental portfolio is that, you know, we can go purchase houses for $50,000 in, in neighborhoods that we wouldn't necessarily want to live in. And you may make a lot of the cash flow, but the question is, are you actually going to be able to collect that cash flow at the end of the day? Are you going to be able to 
get the type of tenant class that's will treat your house like a home and it, and mm-hmm. and securely pays you every month. So we found ourselves in this middle ground where we're not buying the A-class properties because mm-hmm. if we do that and there's a recession, those A-class tenants are probably moving down to B-class potentially. Mm-hmm. So that C plus to B minus class for us really works out. And I don't know what that's like in Montana. Uh, is the mm-hmm. rental market something that is, or if you have a vacancy, and this is just me being naive, by the way. If you have a vacancy, are you in a, uh, a city, a town? I, I don't know a lot about Montana. Maybe just tell me about like what it's like to fill, to fill property, uh, to fill vacancies. Cause I think you're going to blow up some stigmas here for people that are thinking they don't, well, they don't know anything about Montana. Right. <laughs> so it's a little insane at the moment. We live in Kalispell, which is just outside of West Glacier National Park. Um, it's a really popular tourist destination. It's a really popular second vacation home kind of destination. Uh, the community was about 50,000. When COVID hit, 30,000 people moved here wow. in a year. And all of our inventory disappeared. Like there were just, we went from having like 250 houses on the market to like 12. Did that raise rents for, for, you know, rapidly raised rents. Um, and so this last time that we opened up, uh, one of our properties in September, uh, we did increase the rent, I think $400 a month. We had a hundred people apply. Wow. And, and it's really interesting. I'm seeing people people go on road trips and Airbnb, those properties out there. I'm seeing I've heard more people traveling from the East Coast to the Midwest than I ever have. And I think that's because you can kind of stay secluded with COVID and and yeah. go to different properties by yourself. You don't have to have like hotel contact with a bunch of people. So yeah. I think that and I think that trends here to stay, actually, which which is great if for your rental properties because they will inherently increase in value and then also be able to increase in rent. But we saw it here on the East coast. The, the market for rentals was like, it was insane. We, we put something on the property, put a single family home on the market that we thought was a couple hundred dollars a month too high. And it went $500 a month higher than that. Wow. And I think that is generally because of people thinking about where they live and just trying to create kind of a less of a location dependency maybe, but I actually don't know the answer of why that's, that's happening. Um, but it makes sense for where you live. So it's, yeah. it's pretty, um, it's good for a real estate investor and that's, yeah. that's what we're preaching here on the show. So that's uh, that's awesome. I think the next question kind of maybe the next segment of the show to get into a little bit is, is your other investment strategy. So we kind of covered that third that you talked about and, um, I guess really quickly before we do that, what type of cash flow do your rental properties bring in for you? Maybe just if you take one as an example, uh, what is your goal with that in terms of cash flow? And then we can kind of move into the your other investment strategies. Right now, they're cash flowing um, about thirteen to fifteen hundred. Oh, wow. um, and great. that's after the two cash out refis on our first house. So that put a lot of you know, that bought a property and renovated a property. Um, and then we actually did a cash out refi on our primary residence and pulled like 240 out of it. Um, but yeah, for two properties, you know, full size family homes that don't have high turnover and are very kind of low maintenance at this point. Um, 
it's great because our expenses, they used to be about 2000 a month. Now I would say they're about 3000 a month, but just those two properties covers almost all of our expenses, you know, or half of our expenses now. Yeah. And that's incredible to be able to do that in two properties. Uh, that's what happens when you buy properties over 10 years ago and you mm-hmm. ride a market and you buy them under value. And it, same thing we've been talking about. So it's, it's kudos to you. I think that's, that's great. And it's kind of a notion for people that you don't have to have 30 properties to be successful yeah. in real estate. Right. I mean, yeah. um, I, Ryan and I are, th- are growing our portfolio and we want to consistently grow it for more of a, a type of abundant wealth from real estate mm-hmm. and cash flow. But we realized that if we stopped at 12 or 15 properties and we just waited for 10 years, we would most yeah. likely be in very good shape. Now we could, we'd have to ride through a down market. There's no denying mm-hmm. that that's possible. But if you kind of, if you bought a property in 2006 and you were and it cash flowed then, and you were able to hold on to it, you're glad you didn't sell in 2008, yeah. right? You know, so that's, it's those, it's kind of the, the willingness to hold on that I think is, uh, makes the great investor, right? And we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll let our time will tell if, because we've been only doing this for four, four years. So we haven't seen that down market, but I guess the next, as I mentioned, the next segment is kind of want to talk about what your strategies were to maybe keep your expenses low and then also what to invest in specifically as you were talking about, I didn't know if it was index funds or mutual funds or stocks. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, is it a monthly contribution that you're making and how did you decide what to invest in and maybe how much of your um, leftover money from spending to invest in? Yeah, we, we try to keep it easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Like we use target date index funds uh, through Vanguard. So they automatically rebalance. Like we don't have to ever get in there. We never have to like put our fingers in the jar and mess around because that's where investors underperform. Right. The more you try to tinker with your accounts, the worse your performance is. Um, so we try to keep it super hands off and, you know, we maxed out like our Roth IRAs when we were starting, and then it started adding to brokerage accounts. Um, and now we have 401ks through my business and Roth IRAs and a brokerage account. And we tried to, you know, initially we tried to contribute every single month. Uh, and now with self-employment, because I was financially independent and our passive income is more than covering our expenses, um, I've used my business more as a vehicle to fund whatever projects I'm really passionate about. And so any extra income that it creates in a year, we either donate or um, we invest in our business 401ks. Awesome. And I think that's what really financial independence is about for a lot of people. The people who strive to reach financial independence and who really work hard to get there aren't generally the people that are going to sit on the beach for the rest of their lives and do nothing because of how how hard it takes to actually get there. So once you get there, Jillian, you now have the opportunity and the ability to work on passion projects and and things that kind of light you up, which is pretty cool to have done by 32 years old. I mean, that's, that's difficult. It takes diligence and commitment. And I'm wondering, maybe were there any mental or physical really struggles that you had to go through kind of in during the experience uh, of trying to chase financial independence? And the reason why I ask this, I can give you some context. It's just because 
Ryan and I always talk about the it's a heavy pursuit for us, you know, mm-hmm. and we're we're committed. We're really committed to it. But there's a balance, which I think you know a lot about, between living in the now and trying to do things that make you feel good now about the way you're living your life. And then also saving that delayed gratification for another time. Uh, Can you talk about that balance and what you've done in terms of your mini retirements along the way? I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, our goal was to invest half and that was kind of our target. Um, But we really tried to optimize that other half and it was being very intentional with the expenses that we took on. And we made a lot of unconventional choices. Like we lived in the DC area. Uh, We were married. We had one kid, one on the way, and we brought in a roommate for three years, but that roommate for three years gave us an extra $25,000, which made the difference for us buying our first rental property. Cause we barely had enough cash to purchase that one. Um, and so making some of those unconventional choices, but knowing what couple things are super important to you, what are the things you really care about and finding affordable ways, you know, just kind of keeping your eyes open for those opportunities. My husband had considered leaving the military, uh, and he happened to know, I think the husband of the person who assigned uh, all of the positions in the world for his MOS. And she said, we really don't want you to leave. If you reenlist, we will give you any open duty assignment in the world. If it's open anywhere in the world, you get it. Um, and I had dreamed about traveling Europe ever since I was like a kid. I had bought travel books. I had created like pretend itineraries and, you know, in notebooks. Um, so we moved to the very middle of Germany. We moved to Heidelberg, Germany, which is in the center of Europe. It's like four hours. It feels like to all of Europe. It's like four hours to Amsterdam, four hours to right. Paris, four hours to Venice. Like if you got four hours in a car, you can go anywhere. Um, and we lived there for four years and we traveled every weekend. Now we traveled in our car and our tent um, or like youth hostels or kind of, you know, alternative accommodations, like um, kind of like it would be similar to Airbnb now. Um, but it was like Europe pre Airbnb. Like you could stay at a monastery, you could stay at like mm-hmm. this working farm, Um but yeah, we traveled to 27 countries. Like that was a huge priority for that's, us. Uh, travel is so, so important to me and I haven't done enough of it. And I think that's, that's really cool. There's a, that benefit to, to mm-hmm. the military and also the benefit to your husband creating that relationship that yeah. is, is, is pretty cool. They are able to kind of pick where you want to go. And, but I want to take a moment to, to recognize the sacrifice and it maybe isn't even that much of a sacrifice, but for me, the whole house hacking, we'll call it, where you're able to have a roommate. And I did that. I just, just stopped doing that because I moved in with my girlfriend, but I did it for three and a half years with mm-hmm. friends of mine. So it didn't even really feel like it was a sacrifice, but they were able to subsidize my mortgage and that mm-hmm. springboarded me into purchasing real estate investments. And I've talked about this on a previous show. I think that you know, if you do things the way everyone else does them, you're kind of going to return to the mean at some point and just live a life that everyone else lives, which is 
average. And I don't think you look at yourself as average and I don't look at myself as average. So being able to make that sacrifices up front to be able to do the traveling and living the life that you ultimately want, I think is, uh, it's needed, right. Or else yeah. you'll just kind of float along. Um, and that's, maybe that's okay with people. I don't want to downplay that. I think if you, if you're okay with retiring at 65 years old, which I'm sure some people are, I just wasn't, I'm yeah. not, I'm not financially independent yet, but, um, it sounds like you, you were not either. So I think that's a really, really cool thing to point out, especially when you're young and you, you have the ability to house hack. House hacking is great. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it was, it was tough. Like I remember I was working a nine to five job, which I did not love. Um, and every night after our nine hour day, like we would come home and lay flooring and paint until like 10 or 11 o'clock. And my coworkers were like, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this to yourself? And then when we went to buy our first rental property, my boss pulled me aside and he's like, Jillian, are you sure you're making a good choice? Like, are you sure you've really, yeah. He's like, are you Hmm. sure you've really thought this through? And I was like, listen, if I could afford to buy 10 of these, I would. That's how confident I am about this choice. But partly because I had been researching this market for those whole 10 years. Those 10 years renting, I was on Zillow. I was on Craigslist. I was looking in Facebook groups. Like I knew the market over the long term. And I knew that long term, this is a solid investment. Yeah. Unless your boss had owned at one point rental properties or knew, mm-hmm. knew the market, it's oftentimes difficult, or I would recommend against listening to people who haven't done it, right? Unless yes. your boss is somebody that you wanted to emulate. There's a lot of, I see your book in the background. We'll talk about it. Fire the haters. It sounded like he was a hater because a lot of people will tell you what they think. And unless they're the people that you want to be, I, there's no reason to really listen to them. Not, nothing against your boss. I'm sure he's a nice guy, but, but I think it's, it's, it's important for us to note. So I have a specific uh, strategy question for you because you yeah. were kind of in your, sh- in these shoes here where you, you had $55,000 worth of, of debt, but I want to play a scenario. Let's say you're someone who makes $75,000 a year, which is mm-hmm. maybe just a little bit above the average. It's a decent salary. If you're maybe they're 25 years old, which is, uh, that's good for somebody relatively good for somebody who's 25 years old, but let's say they have $50,000 in debt and maybe they have fifteen to $20,000 saved up. Would you recommend this person get involved in investing? Would you recommend they pay off debt first? Would you recommend they purchase a rental property with that saved up money? Just based on your risk tolerance and what you would do, I'm curious because we ask some of our guests this question and it's really good perspective for our listeners to just hone in on what other people would do. Maybe they can relate to their situation in some way. Yeah, I would say for me and honestly for other people, um, it really depends what kind of debt it is and why you got into debt. Um, If it was consumer debt and you haven't really reined it in or figured out a solution to pay that off, I would pay it off first. Because if if your personal spending is kind of out of control, adding a rental property to this is not going to help your situation. Um, It's just going to complicate it. Now, if it's student loan debt, yeah, you need to be investing in everything. Uh, especially if you're part of like a loan repayment program. Um, I do coaching and a number of my coaching clients are on like a 10 year debt repayment where at the end of 10 years, 
the rest of that loan is going to be forgiven. Uh, and sometimes it's massive. You know, I have one client, it's like $250,000 cause she's a doctor. It depends if it's like the 10 year low income debt repayment plan, or if it's public service. Um, so the tax implications are different for those, but you know, in their case, yeah, they need to be investing in the retirement plans. They need to be investing in real estate. Like you can't sit out of the market for a decade. Um, which is maybe how long it'll take to repay that student loan. Um, and same with medical debt. I would say student loan and medical debt are the kinds of debts that it's not horrible to let those ride for a while, especially if you have decent interest rates. But if it's credit card debt, if it's um, car loan debt, like if basically you've been living above your means, uh, that needs to get sorted out. Yeah, I, I would I would totally agree. And I think it obviously depends totally on your goals too with what you what you're looking to achieve. But I think that the the next kind of thing here is like if you since you paid for a home in cash, I mean maybe you would recommend this to people, but there's a lot of uh investors and just people who are trying to get ahead in the world that say that they're trying to pay off their mortgage quicker, right? Maybe put mm-hmm. an extra $200 a month, 250, $300 a month towards your mortgage, pay it off in 20 years or 15 years versus 30. Personally, I don't like that for what I'm trying to do because yeah. if you can get an interest rate at 3.2% for a property, it's essentially going to be free money with the way that inflation is, is yeah. playing out. But that, that may not be how you think. I'm curious, do, would you, do you think that's a way for individuals to get ahead, kind of create equity uh, in order to, to be able to play with money later to pay off their mortgage or, or not. And I'm curious what you would recommend for maybe a coaching client of yours. Um, I could go either way. So us personally at this point, because we have a lot of investments, because we have pretty low expenses, um, high leverage makes more sense for us. Like if the bank would give us more money out of our houses, I would take it and say, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. but we're in a different season of our lives financially. Um, now paying off your mortgage, it makes an enormous difference for people who want to quit their jobs who want to take a year off, who want to, um, maybe switch careers. Yep. If your mortgage is, you know, just a thousand dollars a month, having a thousand dollars less of expenses. And all of a sudden people feel like, Oh, like I can you do can some things again. now. Yeah. Um, versus having that in investments, people are hesitant to pull money out. Um, and it can take people a long time to build up, you know, a thousand dollars a month, additional in rental income. So for some people, especially if they want to like make a change in their life, um, having, having no mortgage can be really psychologically really powerful. Yeah. And, and the financial independence journey, a lot of it has to do with that making that change. There's people that listen to our show who I know for a fact, cause we've gotten hundreds, if not thousands of DMS, just saying like, you know, I, I'm in a situation that I really dislike Yeah. and what's the best way for me to get out of it. And what we always try to tell people is that you have to create a spread between the amount of money that you're bringing in and your expenses, because yeah. then those options allow, they reveal themselves to you. Right. But if you're spending as much as you earn, those options never come. And even if you're in a job that you hate, can you suck it up for three years? That's a long time, right? Maybe not even that yeah. long. Can you suck it up for two years 
And if you make 50 grand, can you spend 25? And then you have that $50,000 worth of options. And if you know you spend 25, then that's two years worth. We actually technically don't have to work. If you yeah. want to get ahead, maybe you do work. If you want to get really ahead, maybe you work, but you have that option. It sounds like you were able to do that, Jillian, where you were saying, mm-hmm. I have enough money that I could take time off. And yeah. that's important for people as they grind it out day in and day out to be able to have that option. So yeah. I think um, not enough people think about that early, re- not early retirement, but the, what was the term that you used? Mini uh, retirements. Yeah. Mini retirements. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I actually have a free PDF on my site. If people yeah, yeah. want some information, jillianjohnser.com slash mini, M-I-N-I. Okay. Um, but how to like take a, a year off every decade. And the numbers, after you look at it, you're like, oh, actually, that's not that hard. Like, I just, I think we don't optimize for that outcome, but oftentimes in a decade, it's nice to have a year off, you know, for whatever that season presents itself. Totally. Cause your life changes and, and you know, the way things go typically, at least in my life, I just literally blinked and I turned 30 and I couldn't believe it. And I remember when I was 22, like it was yesterday. So to have that time off to really give yourself that perspective on how far you, how far you've come, what you've accomplished mm-hmm. or else you're going to wake up one day and you're going to be 70 and you're going to be like, what happened? And, yeah. and um, I don't want to do that. I know that. So very cool. We will put the link in our show notes to, to your website so we can direct people to that. Um, and, and, and uh, hopefully they can get some value from it. I think, I want to talk before we get to the couple last segments of our show, I want to talk to you about your book there, fire the haters. Can you talk about the inception of the book and kind of what you intended as you, as you wrote it? Yeah. I geared it kind of specifically for creatives, entrepreneurs, small business, um, but really anyone who's doing something outside the norm. A little bit. And, and there's a vulnerability in, um, in living differently and having to like deal with people's criticism or people not understanding or people not being supportive, um, and how we kind of manage that life online, but also that fear of failure and imposter syndrome and like wondering if you're like kind of good enough to have a spot at the table when there's people who are better than you. And like, how do we navigate all of that? And this was the book that I really wish I had those first few years. Like I slowly had to figure it out in my personal life. So there's a lot of like personal life applications, but especially once I started creating content and sharing online, there was a steep learning curve. (laughs) Absolutely. We talk about this with a lot of our guests, um, where you're you kind of put your message out in the universe and you don't know if it's worthy until people start latching on. And if you really have yeah. a brand behind it, then you can start to build some notoriety and some kind of um, just validity to what you do. And that builds the confidence behind it. Right. And you get that steam, yeah. you know, that steam engine rolling and it, and it turns into something that you are really proud of, which allows you to work harder because it's something that you want to do. So I, I, I think I'm going to pick up a copy of your book because I think it resonates with art, my journey and, and our journey here with mm-hmm. the weekly juice and just like, you know, getting over the imposter syndrome and, and pushing through it. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, because it's going to be there. So 
Um, awesome. That sounds great. And we'll, we'll link that as well. Before we get into the last segment, I know I just said this, I want to know what your future <laughs> goals are with your investing and, and your content creation and, and becoming financially independent at 32. How old did you say you were now? 38, 38. So it's so, been six years, six yeah. years in it. Right. So first yeah. of all, it's, uh, you know, congratulations on that, but, but not only that, th- is there a sort of like, a lot of people think that you're like come to the top of this mountain and there's like this peak and then maybe it doesn't necessarily feel like that. So what, what do you do with the financial independence? Once you've hit it, what are your future goals? What are you looking to, to come up with next? And, and do you have a investing number that you think that like you can maybe relax after you get to it? I guess maybe you already hit that, but yeah, I, I try to be pretty relaxed with our finances. Um, I just try to be thoughtful, but honestly, I would say in my twenties, you know, there were some really difficult parts of my childhood and kind of stoicism got me through those teenage years and my twenties, like the ability to do hard things, the ability to push through. Um, and in this next season of life, I'm trying to take the opposite approach instead of how can things be harder? I'm trying to think, how can things be lighter? How can things be easier? How can things be more fun and more joyful? And I'm optimizing our finances, not for performance, but for quality of life. Um, so now we've always kind of tried to buy the rentals that we think we'll move into in the future. Uh, the next house that we buy or or build, uh, is definitely going to be a vacation house (laughs) and probably maybe not even in our area, like someplace warmer and sunnier in the winter, because I'm not looking for the highest return, like the highest ROI. I'm thinking about our quality of life. Um, but also our impact and kind of our legacy and how can I do work that I'm really passionate about? Um, I outsource everything in my business that I don't absolutely have to touch unless it's my words or my voice. I don't do it. Um, and it makes my business a lot less profitable, but like, that's what lets me do the work I'm really excited about. It's so, so, so important to, to mention that because we're, we're at a point in our rental portfolio where I, I, for my mental sanity, I need to outsource uh, property management. Yeah. <laughs> it's just something that I need to do, but we've developed uh, this plan to be able to make that happen because of some of the things that we've put into place. And I'm telling you, people that are listening to this, you do this, this pursuit for 10 years yeah, and then you can change 10 years. It's, it's a long time, but it's really not that long in the grand scheme uh-huh. of things. If you, if you commit to 10, some people, it'll take three years. We know some, some people who have built rental portfolios that cover their expenses immediately. And then, you know, the rest is gravy. But if you do this for 10 years and you have that kind of fortitude to just keep pushing through, you'll become financially independent. You'll be in Jillian's spot and you'll be able to, remove all the noise. And that is an important thing that I'm going to continue to try to pursue because removing the noise, it just allows you to, to live a happier life. Like that's what yeah. it's all about. Right. So very cool. Yeah. And thanks for being so specific with that. I think uh, our listeners will take a lot from it. So we've made it to the core four, which is the second to last segment of our show. We'll get to know you a little bit more personally and just maybe see what makes you tick, even though we found out some of that uh, during the show. Um, the first question is, what is your 
favorite investing or business book? Hmm. Investing or business. Um, I really like Donald Miller's business stuff. Oh, if you're looking to, um, his story brand and marketing made simple are fantastic for like step-by-step how to build a brand and a website online. Um, and personal finance, I really like, I kind of, the first book that helped me get my investing financial life together was David Box smart couples finish rich. Okay. Um, also I haven't heard of that, which is cool. It, it's a tough question. I, when I was about 21, 20, I decided to start reading a book a week, all nonfiction. And I've done that for like 17 years now. So oh, you've kept it going. <laughs> I've read wow. a couple books. <laughs> I've read a couple books. Okay. Yeah. Well, I guess if you're going to write a book, you might, might have read some, but a book, I mean, like, hold on a second. You're talking about 20 times, essentially 20 times 50 a year. Mm -hmm. Like you've read hundreds and hundreds of books. That's that's awesome. So, yeah. Um, very I make good use of the library. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. So let's, let's hear about some of the mistakes then. What has Mm -hmm. been your biggest mistake that you've made in your investing journey and how have you learned from it or pivoted or, um, righted the ship, so to speak. Investing. I was scared to start investing. I would say that's my biggest mistake is wanting to feel more ready or more prepared or that the timing was right. And I wish I would have started investing in high school. Like I, I was saving all of this cash. Um, I graduated with like $8,000 in cash. Um, but From it was school? just cash. Yeah. Yeah. That's great though. I mean, yeah. Um, so that was an investing, I would say in my business, it was, well, there again, it was being scared to start. You know, I tell a story in the book about how I had like a 50, hundred page business plan and I'd kind of thought it all through and like done all the research. And I was definitely in that, uh, procrastinating through preparation, uh, And I just never really got started because I was scared and I was nervous. And, and then in my thirties, I looped back around and I was like, Hey, wait a minute. I have the business that I was thinking about at 25. Yeah. It's pretty cool. And it's totally like, I don't want to use the word normal, but it's like, it's, it's what a lot happens to a lot of people in, in just hesitation. Fortunately for me, I think that I have been the type of person that like jumps and then builds a parachute on the way down. And I have some Ryan to, to hold the back, the parachute a little bit. And and Jake, (laughs) who's our producer to do that too. So the balance is good. Uh, We're not really afraid, but we do make mistakes because of that fear. Not all our dots are, our eyes are dotted and T's are crossed, but I think it's, it's more fun that way on our end. So, um, you know, but I think that the fear of starting just just starting even when you're not ready is probably better than flushing out every plan and trying to prevent every mistake from happening at least in my opinion so cool question three what uh if you had an extra fifty thousand dollars maybe like a lump sum just uh thrown at you how would you deploy it and why and you can use this stage of your life maybe you can put it towards your your vacation home (laughs) <laughs> I think I would. Um, I think I would build, we have a piece of vacation land. I think I would build a mini vacation home. That's probably our next big, a mini home you said, uh, yeah, just like a small, 
I've, I've nicknamed it the glamour shed. I just want a really glamorous shed on our vacation property. Um, Those are like huge a nice, now. not yeah. huge, literally, but huge, like people love them now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, something that still feels like camping, but, um, yeah, that'll probably be our next kind of big purchase. And we travel a lot as a family. Um, so I actually, we have like $20,000 in our travel budget. Um, and we're about, we're like two weeks away. We're going to go on a 10 week road trip oh, uh, awesome. and slow travel with all of our kiddos through the Southwest for the winter. So, yeah, that's well better to be in the Southwest than the, the Northeast where I'm at this winter. We're like, <laughs> brace it. So yeah. <laughs> I th- I'm thinking more about location uh, um, arbitrage every single winter that comes mm-hmm. up. So we're getting close. I have a friend who, is thinking about buying a fourplex in Costa Rica. And I'm like fascinated. I'm oh, like, Ooh, fourplex yeah. in Costa Rica. Like you want in on that all deal? the gears in my mind are spinning. <laughs> exactly. Tell her you want in. That's funny. Um, okay. Last question in the core four. I have a feeling that you're going to have a good answer to this just because you sound like you put this, this question into thought a lot. Uh, what, what do you want your legacy to be? And you know, what gets you up out of bed every morning? What's your why behind writing a book and investing and, and mm-hmm. taking this uh, path less traveled? I would say it's split in two categories on the family side. I want to build the kind of family I always wanted to have, you know, that big, super interconnected, super supportive, uh, you know, we have five kiddos. So I imagine we'll have like 10, 15 grandkids at some point. Like I want the massive family vacations where it's like 40 people going to Disney, uh, you know, just that whole thing. And just that supportive, really loving kind of, um, extended family and professionally, you know, one of the big kind of pivot points in my life when I was little, was I would come home from school every day and I'm dyslexic uh, and I'm bipolar. So there's like, I didn't do fantastic in school. Um, initially, uh, I was a very like emotional kid who couldn't read. Um, but I'd come home from school every day and I'd grab a pop cart and sit in front of the TV and I'd watch Oprah. And she was like the first person that kind of, she was like an aunt that showed up every day in my house and like introduced me to cool people and told me cool stories and like kind of lit my imagination of maybe life could be different. Like maybe it could be better. Maybe I could be different than what everyone kind of assumes. You know, I looked like just like a not very bright, slightly antisocial kid. Um, but maybe that wasn't what I was destined for. Um, and, and that's what I want my professional legacy to be. Like, I want to give people hope and offer them a new different perspective um, so that they can change their own life. It's powerful stuff. I think that Oprah came from a pretty humble beginning mm-hmm. like yourself. So if somebody like her can create, it's not about the money necessarily, but being worth billions and, and having the impact that she has, mm-hmm if she can do it, it's kind of out there in the universe. And then we, yeah. we always like to point to like a, a data point and saying that, well, if somebody became 
wealthy or financially independent or made an impact from this area or from this socioeconomic status or from this background, there's a path yeah. in almost every scenario that you can do it. And I talk about all the time having, being fortunate growing up and I, and I'm aware of that, but what am I going to do with that? What am I going to use? How, how, what, how am I going to use that impact to, to, to help others? And it's something similar to what you're doing. So I, I really like that answer. Um, cool. We made it to the last drop. And in the last drop, um, our question is knowing what you know now, Jillian, what advice would you give your younger self if you could go back and do things differently or maybe do them the same? I think I would just try to encourage her that like, you're going to do okay. And it's actually going to get a lot better and it's going to be way better than you can imagine at this point. Like you're doing everything right. Uh, and I remember when I was like 22, 23 in David box financial book, he has like compound interest charts in there. And I would, I would earmark those. And sometimes when I would be having a, a hard day, I would just open a compound interest chart and I'll be like, so if we can get to this number, like then it's going to end up to be that number. And it seemed magical. Like it seemed impossible because compound interest is so mind boggling, especially okay. when you're in your twenties and you have like so much trajectory for it to be gigantic. Um, but, and now like we're living it, you know, now we have like $700,000 invested and a 10% stock market gain, you know, over a year is $70,000. Like we barely made $70,000 in a year. And now our money just does that all on its own with no input from us. The telling yourself that it's going to going to happen and it's going to be okay. I wish I could I don't really want to listen to my own voice. I need to record. Maybe you can record that and I'll just play your voice. Cause I still need to hear it. And I think everyone does. Yeah. Uh, so uh, first of all, it's been awesome to just get to know you and just, and just listen to your story. This is what we love to do. We love to hear people's stories. And I don't know a lot of people who are from Montana and just to meet somebody who's from there is doing something similar to what we're doing is really inspiring. And I think you're going to inspire other people in doing that. So I want to thank you for coming on. And I know that you are, you have some sort of business ventures to plug. I know you're a coach and before we get out of here, I just want to see what's the best way for people to get in touch with you and maybe some, uh, you know, jump on some of the services that you provide so that you can get other people to a financial position that, that you are. Yeah. Uh, com or I'm Jillian Jonesrud at most social media platforms. So I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, if you're interested in the mini retirements, I would do the slash mini cause that's like a 30 page, super helpful PDF. Um, if you're a creative or an entrepreneur, I'd check out my book, fire the haters, finding the courage to create online in a critical world. Um, and yeah, and I have a free course, um, for like personal finance. So if you're kind of struggling with your budgeting and your financing, I've got a free course for that too. So I have lots of free resources on my site. Like I am an educator at heart. I just love creating, uh, content and, and teaching. So there's like, there's tons of stuff on my site. Awesome. Thank you for your time, Jillian. We really appreciate it. Um, we won't tell Rye that we did really good. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I will uh, make sure that we stay in touch. So thanks for coming on. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. 